Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, for the season finale, we are looking into the grimmest and most gruesome serial killer in American history. And I'd even go as far as say the most violent. It's Edmund Kemper. You asked me how I am first. Because I always ask you how I am. You are... You- <laughs> Go on, do it. Ask me how I am. Um, <laughs> Helen, how are you? I got something to confess to you. Oh God, okay. Well, you know how, like in one of the, the, our earliest episodes, you weren't wearing any pants. Well, I, that almost happened today again today as well. Well, I'm just telling you, in the season finale, I'm not wearing any pants, and I feel that we're now at closure. Welcome to the club, my friend. You judged me, but is it laundry day? No, I fake tanned. Oh. And I didn't want to add an extra layer of unnecessary clothing to potentially disrupt the tanning process. Who's going to be seeing those tan lines? Oh, it just will bother me when I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm in the nude. Do that often, dear. Yeah, I love looking at my naked self. Well, good for you. I think we all should look at our naked self more. I like the little little jiggle. Do you not find it funny sometimes, though, when you get the pants mark and then you're like, huh, looks like I'm still wearing pants? No, it'll just annoy me. It'll just annoy me. It's not perfect. I want to look like a goddess. I'm going to draw a smiley face on you. I'm going to lick my finger. You come near me with your wet fingers, I will be livid. It's raining today, so I've been <laughs> rushing in and out of the rain to be like, no, don't want any warbucks, mustn't ruin my tan. We got into the studio and she's like, can you open the door for me because I can't get wet? Yep, and I ran. We oh. should have done the intro as uh, Welcome to Devils in the Dark with the Queen, Helen, Her Majesty Helen Anderson <laughs> and her regal tan. And my regal tan. I was thinking about this earlier. Like, uh, do you have conversations in your head with yourself? Just like, you know. I spend la, la. <laughs> a lot of time by myself, so yes. Well, I, I was thinking, <laughs> I'm going to smell, potentially smell like biscuits and you're going to complain about it. But then I thought... Does fake tan actually smell like biscuits? I don't know any biscuits that smell like that. And do we just accept that it smells like biscuits because people say that fake tan tastes like bis- smells like biscuits? So Who we just says go, that? The world does. Do they? Like, oh, I smell like biscuits. I've never once heard anyone be like, oh, yeah, fake tan smells like biscuits. Uh, I think you're the only person in the world that thinks that because everybody says it smells like biscuits. I don't think that's true. Though this one actually doesn't smell too bad. Right, I don't think that the people at home listening want to hear you smell yourself (laughs) today. Can you believe that we've we've come so far from day one, episode one, right, and now here we are talking about smelling ourselves and not wearing any pants? Yeah, again, I I, I feel like I don't. I think that like this current podcasting me is looking bad on my past podcasting self, and it's a different person. Like I don't recognise that person. I remember the first episode we sat down uh-huh. and as soon as I got in front of the microphone, I, I like my breath caught and I was like, I don't know what to say. That was just very you're scary. Doing, but you're doing a very great job. Thank you, for it, my friend. You're, you're, it wouldn't be the same without you. You well, make this podcast. Oh God, don't 
Don't start crying on me. I can't. I might do. <laughs> well, I think you've come so far, Helen Anderson, oh. and I'm really proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> oh. Shall we do it then? Can we hold hands? Yeah, okay. Well, do Can I... Oh, I hang on, reach. I just actually have to heft my boob onto the table <laughs> so it doesn't get in the way. She's onto the desk. I can't oh. reach. Oh, oh, look. I'm going to rub your finger. Oh, that's a lot, isn't it? Oh, she's rubbing my finger. She doesn't like affection. No. But that was a tender moment for everybody to get involved. In a way, listeners, we were rubbing all of your fingers just then. Isn't that nice? What a lovely way to sound creepy. Yep. Um, should we get... Should Let's we just talk about a murder, shall we? Can we crack on then, Yeah, we? okay. Right, because they're like, come on, shall I ask? Shut up! Shall I ask episode? I've got all bloody dang. You've asked the nine women. (laughs) Right, okay, let's set the scene. It's a late night in April 1973 in Santa Cruz, California, and a woman in her 50s has just come home from a party. Her 24 year old son has stayed up waiting for her. His massive six foot nine frame towers over her as they exchange some brief words after she falls asleep he bludgeons her to death with a hammer the day after the murder he mutilates her body cutting her into pieces before stashing her in a closet he then goes on to claim another victim his mother's best friend but these two women are not the first victims of this violent killer The man has eight murders under his belt already, including both of his paternal grandparents. But his main targets? Young, college-aged women. She was hitchhiking home from school. She was taken out to a remote area where she was shot in the head with a 22 caliber gun. The man leaves Santa Cruz and he drives away in his final victim's car. He drives for three days and ends up in Colorado. He then enters a phone booth and calls the police. He dials the Santa Cruz Police Department. It's a busy Friday night in Santa Cruz. Officer says, Santa Cruz Police Department, can I help you? I need to talk to Lieutenant Shear. He doesn't work on the weekends. You'll have to call back on Monday. I got to put you on hold. He calls back and he finally says, hey, I got information about all those dead girls. A talented liar with a crazy high IQ, this man had tricked society into believing he is a gentle giant for half a decade. Do I think Kemper is an evil man? The answer has to be yes. He is the definition of violence and evil. You pray nobody else is out there like that again. It appears, everyone, we have Kermit the Frog (laughs) hearing in our... uh, He's doing some um, side hustle in the police department. Good for him. (laughs) So let's go back to the start. Edmund Kemper was born on December 18th, 1948. He lived in Burbank, California, with his mother, Clonell, his father, Edmund Sr., and his two sisters. Criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley says that, sadly, Edmund's childhood was not a happy one. He came into the world in the post-war years and rather than being a time of hope and a a time of prosperity for him, it was a time of abuse, it was a time of neglect. Author and journalist Geoffrey Wansel says that growing up, Edmund's parents had a fairly rocky relationship. They all do. His father was a World War II veteran and had worked on nuclear testing before coming back after the war. 
to work as an electrician. Ed's father used the expression suicide missions were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. Clarnell was an extraordinary personality. Neurotic, aggressive, alcoholic and utterly domineering. She terrorised both her husband and her son, favouring the two daughters. That's quite a statement to make, is that (laughs) suicide missions were, like, essentially easier than living with her. Yeah, I mean, this... Wow. In 1957, when Edmund was nine years old, his parents inevitably divorced. Oh, that old chestnut. Yeah. I can see where this is going to go. Yeah. His mother took him and his sisters to live with her in Helena, Montana. Montana. Now, Edmund had some dark fascinations as a child. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. While most children were playing tag or hide-and-seek or rounders, Edmund wanted to play some more sinister games. He would play games with his sisters like gas chamber or electric chair. He would get them to tie himself to a chair and then he would pretend to be electrocuted. I used to play a game with my sister, which was put your finger in my mouth. And I'm gonna, <laughs> Fuck it out. I'm going to bite down on it really, really slowly. And you've got to tell me how long you can like last until it really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Is that is that similar to electric chair? Uh, it involved pain, so... Do you think that was fun for his yeah. sisters? Right, right, you sit there, I'm going to electrocute you now. I can see kids kind of, you know, finding it fun to be like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But uh, it's pretty dark, isn't it? Yeah. I, um, a gas chamber, perhaps, is a bit... Yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? Bloody mm. hell. Also, like, for a kid to just know about that, I think when I was... How old was he? Nine. nine yeah when i was nine i don't think i knew about that kind of stuff not mm. to play games with it Mm-mm. um so. i didn't get a sibling until i was seven Aww. and a half she was a tiny tiny thing as well yeah so. so she was she was no fun by the time i was nine yeah um so okay. i just used to play alone in my bedroom tumbleweed <laughs> tiny violins me and my toy horses <laughs> we went on loads of adventures they were great friends Not only did he play questionable games with his sisters, but probably one of the most disturbing incidents of his childhood involved the family pets. So if you're a cat lover, please brace yourself. He killed two of the family's cats, one when he was 10 and the other at 13. The first cat he buried alive, then dug up the body and mounted its head on a spike. What the fuck? At 10 years old. The other, he killed with a knife and then hid the body in his closet until it was found by his mother. My God. When asked about the cats later in life, Edmund said he killed the second one because he thought it liked his sister more than him. Oh, fuck off, Edmund. He needs some toy horses. When he was 10, Edmund's mother forced him to sleep in the basement. She was afraid that he would harm his sisters. Criminal psychologist Rex Bieber says this is a lasting effect on young Edmund. Now, you can have two different views of this. One is that it's horribly cruel. And the other is, this is a mother who did the only thing she could to protect her daughter. Regardless of the explanation, from Kemper's point of view, it was torture. And he reviled 
his mother. It's a tricky situation. I know it's awful to, like, make your son sleep in the basement. But equally, like, he did just stab a cat, decapitate a cat, and also stab a cat and hide it in a closet. Like, what's he capable of doing to his sister? Yeah, like, definitely. Uh, You'd have to do something. I mean, just shoving him in a basement probably isn't the best thing to do. But at that point, you'd start... I guess, is it difficult it must be quite difficult to think oh my god my child's a psychopath yeah by the way i just want to put this out there i'm not condoning putting children in basements i'm just like yeah it's probably a really tricky situation to be in yeah you couldn't just leave him you wouldn't leave him alone with her would you No. as you can imagine edmund had a very toxic relationship with his mum clarnell was incredibly critical of him often verbally abusing him she basically bullied him all the time making fun of his large size kemper was six foot four by the time he was 15 bloody hell that's really tall. That's really tall. Oh, I bet everybody at school called him Bean Pole or something like that. Do Americans do that? They probably don't do that. She demeaned him and she abused him and, and basically ostracised him and made him feel terrible. Kemper expresses more than almost any serial killer I've ever heard of a hatred of his mother that's indescribable. When he was 14, Edmund left Montana and he went to find his father in California, but he wasn't greeted with the warm welcome he was hoping for. He goes and he finds his father, but his father doesn't really want to know because he's got a new life now, he has a stepson, he has this new family unit, and Ed feels incredibly rejected by that. Edwin lived with his dad for a short time, but eventually he was sent to live with his paternal grandparents on a farm in Norfolk, California. This would prove to be a deadly decision. His grandmother is very similar to his mother. She's incredibly domineering. She's not particularly nice to him. The years of abuse and rage were about to finally boil over. On August 27th, 1964, 15-year-old Kemper would kill for the first time at 15. Journalist Geoffrey Wansall knows the details of that day because Jeff knows knows everything, doesn't he? He does. I think he might be Jesus. No, he doesn't. (laughs) His grandmother is sitting at the kitchen table. Without really any warning... Kemper goes and fetches a rifle, which is in the house, and shoots her. In fact, he shoots her twice, just to make sure she's dead. Then he sits down at the kitchen table opposite the body of his grandmother and waits for his grandfather, and he shoots him too. That's fucking shocking. Lordy. Then there is a bizarre twist... Edmund made a very surprising move. Immediately after he killed his grandparents, he calls his mother and he says, I've killed my grandparents. And she tells him, well, you you stupid boy, just call the police and wait there until they arrive. And he sits there waiting for the police. He doesn't run. He doesn't do anything. And when they get there and explain, he said, well, I, I wanted to find out what it felt like to kill grandmother. Edmund was arrested and the court psychiatrists diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. He was then sent to a Tascadero State Hospital in California, a maximum security facility for mentally ill convicts. While imprisoned, Edmund seemed to find peace for the first time in his life. He was an absolutely model inmate. Um, He helped the staff, he organised visits, he started doing psychiatric testing. They realised at Atascadero that he actually had an extremely high IQ, it was 145. He's very smart, very manipulative. And he did what many serial killers can do. He convinced the staff of the hospital that he was cured. 
And so he was released. We know by now that this is tomfoolery. They never reform. They never reform. An IQ of 140, yeah. 146, is that really high? What? I don't know. I don't believe in IQs. Is that because yours is low? Fuck off. <laughs> Apparently the normal IQ range is between 85 and 115. So 145 is really high. That's what I've just found out. Good old Mensa. On his 21st birthday, December 18th, 1969, Kemper was set free and his criminal records as a juvenile were sealed. Were sealed, Danny. His criminal records were sealed and put under the rug. I don't know if that's okay, personally. Two murders. Although I guess he was young, they think he's reformed. Like, does he deserve a key? Can he fully get a second chance? I'm sorry, I was He's got want those to hanging over him. Well, yeah, but you only say this because you know what he goes on to do next. I don't. According to a detective, Terry Medina, the psychiatric report conducted after his release made for shocking and pretty ironic reading. The report stated in part, Edmund Kemper is no longer a danger to society. He, in fact, is no more dangerous to society than the motorcycle that he rides. But tragically, that was all about to be proved very wrong. His prison doctors had recommended that he not live with his mother. Probably a great idea, considering they don't get on at all. But, but, as much as they recommended they didn't live together, he was put back in the care of his mum. Edmund's rage started to build again. From the perspective of people with this, what I will call psychopathic rage, nothing less than killing, torture, and mayhem is sufficient to give even momentary relief. And in May 1972, that rage would once again boil over. After serving five years in a state mental institution for shooting his grandparents, the now 21-year-old Edmund Kemper moved to Santa Cruz, California. He continued to live with his mother near the university where she worked, and by the time he was released, Edmund had grown to be incredibly tall, towering over everyone he came into contact with. He grew to six foot nine, weighed 21 stone, 300 pounds. He was, in a way, almost a Frankenstein figure. He, he was a big boy. That's a big old man. He's <laughs> a very big old man. With his criminal record as a juvenile sealed, no one knew about his past. So he was able to get a job at the Department of Transportation. But in 1973, Edmund was hit by a car while riding a motorbike. Ed Kemper was involved in an accident and he received quite a lot of compensation for that. It's around about $15,000. He injured himself quite badly in this accident, so he could no longer do his work for the, the state highway authority. So you've got a young man now who's got a lot of money, he's got a lot of time on his hands. $15,000 in the 70s was actually like a really big amount of money. It's the equivalent to $111,000. Oh, that is a lot of money. So 21-year-old... With $111,000 at that time. He's not going to invest it he, wisely, No, is he's he? not, but he doesn't have to work. He's not going to have to work. He's got... That's a lot of money, even then. Would it set you up for life, though? I don't know, but obviously a lot... Of, it was cheaper back then, wasn't it? Everything, everything was cheaper. Everything was better back then. Yeah. 
with the money that he got, he bought his um, car, which was a Ford Galaxy. And now age 23, he spent his days drifting, driving and picking up young female hitchhikers. He starts cruising around. He starts going up and down the, the state highways and he's essentially doing trial runs. He's becoming aware that, that he can have access to people. He has the opportunity to harm people. It was about to take an ominous turn. On May 7th, 1972, Kemper's trial runs were over. He would drive around the university where his mother was working and pick up co-eds. And he describes this specifically as being done because those co-eds had a connection, however ephemeral or symbolic, with his mother and her place of work. He has a sticker on his car from the university where his mother works, so girls feel that they can kind of identify with him, and he doesn't look like a monster. By the way, co-ed is a really American term. It basically means um, a female student in a mixed college university. Did you know that? Why is that? Co-ed. Yeah, but why? I don't know. Because women... Just call them the students. Women at university? Good God. Can you believe it? She's filling her brain with nonsense. So he was out on one of his usual prowls for hitchhikers and came across two young students in Berkeley, Marianne Pesca and Anita Lachessa. The two young women were looking for a ride to Stanford University and they were both 18. Edmund drove the two young women out to the woods. He then handcuffed them both and threw Anita into the trunk of his car. Often he'll say to them, I'm not going to kill you, in order to placate them and, and make sure that they, they, they don't make a fuss and, and try and run away. And then he does murder them and then he has sex with their dead bodies. The horrifying aspect of Kemper now is that his sexuality is completely deformed. He cannot effectively operate sexually if the woman is alive. The only reason that he's not raping them before he kills them is that he doesn't want to be rejected by them. When you're having sex with a dead body, it's not going to reject you, it's not going to insult you or demean you in the same way that his mother had insulted or demeaned him. It's almost like his self-esteem is a cliff and his mum was the crashing waves and storm and it's been crumbling, crumbling away and all that's left is a tiny pile of rocks. Because if he cannot deal with the rejection from a woman, so he has to murder her and have sex with her so he doesn't have to go through the rejection, he must just have nothing left. That was quite poetic. Thanks. Edmund stashed the body parts in a plastic bag, or multiple plastic bags, and storing some of the parts in his home and others in the trunk of his car. This is something that's known as partialism. It's a, a sexual arousal through, through keeping body parts. And I think for Kemper, this is his way of staying close to his victims, of owning them and possessing them and literally carrying a part of them with him. According to Detective Terry Medina, Edmund eventually dumped the body parts in the Santa Cruz Mountains near Berkeley University. The bodies were found by two unsuspecting hikers. A couple that were out uh, hiking and walking their dog uh, came across these heads 
Subsequently, we identified Marianne Pesch and Anita Lucessa, and we find out that these two young women were hitchhiking. Unbeknownst to us, those were the first two victims of Edmund Emil Kemper. Four months later, in September 1972, Edmund killed again. This time, his victim was 15-year-old Aiko Koo. Edmund picked her up while she was attempting to hitchhike to her ballet class in San Francisco. She was at a bus stop, and she missed the bus. She didn't want to be late for the dance class. She was so anxious about that and so frustrated, so she uh, started to look for rides. And Edmund Kemper was cruising the area looking for victims and pulled over. He drove across the Bay Bridge to San Francisco, but just kept driving. And this young girl knows now she is driving through San Francisco, not where she wants to go. He gets to Highway 1 and is now traveling south towards Santa Cruz. And she is just panicked and crying and wants to be lit out. And he makes a turn on a country road. She has a chance here. He pulls into a field on the edge of a forest. He's going to kill her. He gets out of the car to get a weapon out of the trunk, a knife. She locks the door. She locks him out of the car. But she doesn't know how to start the car, let alone drive the car. Absolutely terrifying. That's horrible. But at least, like, she had the wits about her to lock lock the doors. Yeah, she did, but she was also stranded because he's just there, like, locked out. She can't, she can't start the car. So what's she going to do? So he's, like, chatting to her, trying to convince her that he wasn't going to hurt her. Everything was all right. <sighs> As he explained to us later, he spent over an hour coaxing her, encouraging her to unlock the car and let him in. As I recall, it was things like, I'm sorry, I'll let you go, let me in, I won't harm you. And she let him in, and she was killed. She let him in. She let him in. Why did she let him in? What was she going to do, just sit there forever? Yeah, she's only 15. She didn't know any better. Nah. That's so sad. Once he got back in the car, he didn't waste any time. He strangled her to death. And then he raped her. This one really hurt me. This was really a difficult uh, victim for me. Uh, I Coco was this young Korean-American girl who lived with her mother, who worked in the library at the uh, University of California at Berkeley. Her mother was dedicated to this young girl. She was a single mom raising this kid. She was learning how to dance and take ballet, and her mom made her costumes. It's so sad. Like It's just sad, isn't it? She had her whole life ahead of her. And... Yeah, from the pictures, she was just this, 
I mean, it's not all about looks, but she was so beautiful and just adorable and, like, innocent looking. I just really pure evil to want to harm someone, like, so, so young. She had no chance. No. Then, as if it was just a normal day, he went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks, all while Ico's body sat in his trunk. Edmund would later admit that after leaving the bar, he opened the trunk and with a twisted sense of pride said he admired his catch like a fisherman. I wish there was like... Oh, yeah. Like, like we're sh- currently shaking our heads. Like, Slack-jawed and shaking my head, which is uh, probably really unattractive. But um, there's no noise comes out of you when that happens. You shake your head, no. It's not great for a podcast. No, it's no. not. But it does get worse. God. He dove back to the apartment where he cut up her body and had sex with a corpse. Fuck off. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell and criminal psychologist Rex Bieber say by this point, Kemper's rage was only growing. Women were a source of rage. They became a focus of his sexuality. It evolved around death rather than around life. He didn't want to celebrate a relationship with a woman. He wanted to humiliate and to destroy a woman. But the one crucial characteristic of Kemper, something he has in line with many lust killers, is there are times when the level of rage, hatred, and intensity in him is truly beyond control. And Detective Terry Medina says that during this time, local detectives had their hands full. Now, California at this time was not the place to go on holiday or just be in generally. There were three serial killers on the loose, basically, in California at the time. Active at that time. Active at that time. Um, So anyone could be the target. What we did not know at the time was during the time period of late 71 through the beginning of 73, two serial killers were operating in the same place at the same time Herbert William Mullen killed 13. So it was confusing to us. In the beginning, our thinking was they had to be connected. This is unusual. But the evidence did not connect them. What a fucking minefield for the police. Like people being killed left, right and centre. Yeah. How do you go? Where do you start? Do you think that they knew about each other like the serial killers because in dexter that happened like they have a facebook group well like no in dexter in dexter once i can't remember how it happened because it was a long time ago now but dexter there and then there was the what was he like the triad killer or something uh john lithgow Mm. character and they knew about each other and they sort of like they weren't friends and it was almost like a oh i'm better than you kind of Really? Yeah. I'm a better serial killer than you are. Yeah. Like, do you reckon there would be sort of like a... I don't know. I don't a think, contest? I don't know. January 1973, Kemper struck again. This time, his victim was 18-year-old Cindy Shaw. Her brother, Forrest Shaw, remembers his sister fondly. Cindy was a dedicated student and was just starting to make a life for herself. Oh, she was a rambunctious child. She was... Very giving, caring individual. She took a job as an au pair in Santa Cruz, California, and attended school um, during the day, and then they would take care of the children uh, thereafter. 
and she went to, a, it was a junior college called Cabrillo. It was adjacent to the Cal State University of Santa Cruz. Forrest recalls those harrowing first few days after she vanished. It was very scary because, you know, we didn't know if she'd run away or had been, you know, abducted. It's the middle of the winter and very depressing and, you know, you just start thinking of things. Eventually, Forrest found out about the awful fate of his sister. She was hitchhiking home uh, from school. It's cold and a car pulled up and it had a school staff sticker on the bumper. From the police reports, they said that she probably felt comfortable getting in. And um, she was taken out to a, a remote area where she was shot in the head with a 22 caliber gun. And then we don't know all the details, but she was dismembered. Uh, parts of her body were thrown into the Pacific Ocean. Kemper kept her head. God, what is it about heads? He, uh, he'd buried the head in his mother's garden, and he made a point to bury the head facing upward to his mother's bedroom. Oh, my God. He did this because she, quote, always wanted people to look up to her. Perhaps most tellingly, Edmund was still subject to regular psychiatric analysis throughout his killing spree, which was a condition of his parole after serving time for killing his grandparents. He was having an interview, a final interview, with a psychiatrist in a nearby city. The psychiatrist, in his report to the court, said that Edmund Kemper was rehabilitated. The problem with that, that whole thing, Cynthia Shaw's head was in a bag in the back seat of Edmund Kemper's car at the time of that interview with the psychiatrist. On February the 5th, 1973, just four weeks after killing Cindy Shaw, Edmund killed again, this time 23-year-old Rosalind Heatherthorpe and 20-year-old Alison Liu. He would later tell us that he actually shot them as he drove off a campus, stabbing all these victims to death was getting to be a lot of work. It was starting to bother him. A lot of blood. He was cleaning everything. So he went and bought a gun, purchased a gun. And as he was traveling towards the city of Santa Cruz, he just turned and shot him. One was in the back seat, one was in the front seat. Edmund returned home with the two bodies. When he was finished with them, he discarded their remains. Finished with them. I hate to think. A week after the murders, body parts started washing up on the shore in Santa Cruz. Oh. As time went along, we were finding body parts on Cowles Beach. Other parts were found down below Monterey between Carmel and Big Sur. And that started to create huge issues as we started to identify people, Cynthia Shaw, Aiko Ko, a number of young women. Clearly, there was a pattern in the co-eds. Number one, they're young student women. They are stabbed to death. They are dismembered, common. And all the investigators starting to focus on, okay, now this is one set of crimes. 
and the thread that weaved between them was hitchhiking. During his 11-month killing spree, Edmund would hang out in a bar in downtown Santa Cruz called The Jury Room. It was here that Detective Terry Medina, FBI agent Bobby Chacon, and criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley say that his behaviour took an even more sinister turn. It's a bar across from the courthouse. A lot of cops hang out there. A lot of people that work in the courts hang out there. Lawyers hung out there. By all accounts, personally, Kemper was a gentle giant. Um, even some of the police officers he had befriended him described him that way. They called him Big Ed in a kind of friendly manner. So he knew that he was coming across as non-threatening. There's only one occasion that I remember seeing him there. He was at the far end of the bar. He didn't, like, push himself onto anybody that I saw. To me, it was almost like he was listening. Are any of the detectives there talking about any of these murder cases? Is he getting any information from us? Very interesting. He blended in very well there. Forrestal has his own thoughts on the situation. He was picking their brains. He was trying to find out if they knew anything. I don't fault the cops. You know, how the hell would they know? I've never faulted the police, by the way. They, they did their job. But things were about to start unraveling for Edmund. In April 1973, a diligent clerk in Santa Cruz ran a routine check on a gun dealer's sale records. A records clerk at the sheriff's office finds a 3 by 5 card, Edmund Emil Kemper, same as on the dealer record of sale for the gun. All the information is blacked out. Why? Because his record had been sealed. But she could read through the blackout, and it said 187 PC, Madera, California. 187 PC is the California Penal Code for Murder, Madera County was where he killed his grandparents many, many years ago. She brought that card to the detective lieutenant in the bureau and said, this gun has already been delivered to this guy. I'm not so sure he's supposed to have it, but his record is sealed. Ooh. On April 6th, 1973, two detectives went to question Edmund. When they got to his home, Edmund wasn't there. But as they're about to leave, the Ford Galaxy rolled into the driveway. Kemper drives up and they watched him get out of the car. Remember, he's six foot nine. He's huge. He blocked out the sun. They identified themselves and said, made the inquiry about, did you buy a gun? He said, yes, I did. They said, we don't think you're supposed to have this gun and we want it. Now he later said, I thought they knew I was the killer, that he was gonna open the trunk and shoot them both. But they're very good cops, good training. They took his keys, they wouldn't let him open the trunk. They made him move far to the side. The, uh, one of them opened the trunk, they took the gun, gave him a receipt and they drove away. They had no idea, but the police were now in possession of the murder weapon. And Edmund now knew that he was in for shit. By spring 1973, 
Serial killer Edmund Kemper had murdered a total of eight people in the state of California. He had killed both of his parental grandparents as a teenager and then went on to kill six students who had been hitchhiking in and around the Santa Cruz area. However, Edmund's reign of terror was about to come to a really gruesome end. Having just been visited by the police, Edmund decided to end his killing spree with one final act. Back in April of 1973, Kemper starts to get a little bit skittish because he's been visited by the police. And I think this is one of the things that brings about the murder of his mother. Ultimately, he believes that killing his mother is the only way to stop killing co-heads. He, he actually figures out the connection and decides, almost like a psychologist, I've got to kill my mom because that's the source of all my problems. And once I kill her, I won't be a killer anymore. On April 20th, 1973, Edmund waited for his mother to return from a party. She got back, she was a bit drunk, she went to bed and he went up to see her. She sits up in bed and says to him, I suppose you want to talk all night now. And he's he's a bit upset by that. So um, he snaps. Interestingly, he doesn't kill her just there and then. He, just, he waits until she's fallen asleep. So it's 4am, he takes a hammer... He went into her bedroom and he smashes her in the head with it. He beats her with it a number of times. It gets worse. He decapitates her and he uses her head as a dartboard. Fucking hell. He's there. He's throwing darts at her and he's shouting at her. He says like, you won't yell at me anymore. Bloody hell. throwing darts at her head. Then, in all the years of violent hatred for his mother, resulted in what criminal psychologist Rex Bieber says was an incredibly unique act. And then he does something that I know of no other instance of this in serial crimes. He cuts open her neck, takes out her vocal cords, and remember, his mother's vocal cords were the offending organ because that's how she demeaned him. That's how she criticized him. And he took her vocal cords and put it down a garbage disposal. <laughs> it's not funny, but fucking hell. Like, how, like, it's involved, in it? I feel like it's quite a poetic ending. It's very, um... Symbolic. Just, yeah, like... God, that's some rage, isn't it? And then he ripped out a voice box and... And put it in the trash! Garbage disposal, though. That will have... Churned it all up. Yeah. Oh, that's what it was. I just thought it was the trash bin. Oh, that's even worse! Yeah, my mum has a garbage disposal. It's got, like, a little rotary blade in it. Uh, Yeah, that's really symbolic of, you'll never talk to me again. He basically, like, he smoothied her voice box. There's no coming back from that. Edmund then returned to his usual tactics. He uh, cut the body of his mother into pieces. He then washed them in the bathtub. And um, he then hid them in his mother's closet. He washed them. Mm -hmm. But he, he wasn't finished. He had one last thing to do. Edmund figured he needed a cover story as to why his mother disappeared, so he decided um, that she'd gone on holiday with her best friend. But the only problem was was her best friend was still, obviously, uh, in the neighbourhood. So he invited 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Hallett to come over to the house for dinner. So she walks in the door and he pretends to take her coat off, but he just pushes it down over her, over her arm so she, she can't move. He then bludgeons her to death with his fists... Stuffs her in the front closet and off he goes until he gets to Pueblo, Colorado. So Edmund uses Sarah's car. 
which is quite rude, as the getaway vehicle. And he drove for three days taking caffeine pills to stay awake. Oh, my God. In the stolen car, Edmund had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. He decides he's going to make a getaway. He knew the cops would be on his tail, and he'd planned to shoot it out when they tried to stop him. But the shootout Edmund had envisioned never happened. In fact, in the days after his final murders, there was no news being broadcast about them. So, impatient, he's like, oh, God, why is no one making a fuss out of the awful things I'm doing? On April 23rd, he goes to a phone booth and makes an astounding call. He dials the Santa Cruz Police Department. It's a busy Friday night in Santa Cruz. Kemper calls. Officer says, Santa Cruz Police Department, can I help you? I need to talk to Lieutenant Shear. He doesn't work on the weekends. You'll have to call back on Monday. I got to put you on hold. Kemper hangs up. He gets upset. He hangs up. He calls back and he finally says, hey, I got information about all those dead girls. Now we're paying attention. Do you think he was just tired and bored and he just didn't get the reaction he's wanted? So he's like, oh, fuck this. I'm going to cause a fuss. Well, he's now, he's he's got rid of his main... Yeah, that's it. He's done. Like, he's got rid of his mum, his main ignition point his rage flame yeah um and so he probably wants that recognition of like look what i've done i'm free now local police arrived to arrest the man who had just confessed to being the notorious killer kemper takes up the entire phone booth they get him into custody put a hold on him and the story now starts to get filled in and unraveled we sent the district attorney a district attorney investigator and my partner, uh, Detective Alufi, they flew to Colorado, rented a station wagon, and the four of them took three days to drive back to California. They started out by saying, Ed, can you tell us how all this started? And he sat there like I am sitting here, and he said, on such and such a date and such and such a time, I was in Berkeley, California. Kemper connects every dot to every single case. He was so precise, we were able to link the evidence to his statements to the crime scenes. As to why he confessed, Jeff knows more. He said later, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. But he said, and I think more tellingly, the original purpose was gone. And that was, of course, Clarnell. On May 7th, 1973, Edmund Kemper was indicted for the eight murders he had confessed to. His trial began five months later on October 23rd. On November 8th, 1973, just five hours of deliberation, the jury declared Edmund Kemper sane and guilty of first-degree murder on all eight counts. I'm saying, fucking saying, whatever. He was given seven years to life on each account to be served one after the other. Whilst incarcerated, he's given dozens of interviews that have actually helped FBI serial killer profilers understand the minds of murderers. He is currently still serving his sentence at California Medical Facility in Vacaville, Solano, County, California, and is eligible for parole in 2024. Oh, that's soon. I know. We'll revisit that. (laughs) 
you had a reaction to him being uh, judged as sane? Yeah, I did. Do you not think that? Do you not agree? No. What sane person would do shit like that? Do you not? I think he knew what he was doing. Oh, okay. It's not rational. No, but he he's, did. He's a very irrational man. Might be sane, but he's irrational. Christ. Do I think Kemper is an evil man? The answer has to be yes. When I think of Icoco, when I think of his mother, no matter how he appeared outwardly, he is the definition of violence and evil. You pray nobody else is out there like that again. It was very difficult. I lost my sister. My mom lost her daughter. He's where he's supposed to be and society's better off for that. And um, I hope he never gets out. It didn't give me closure. Um, I'm not sure if it gave me peace. And you can cut this out, but I could write a letter to him right now saying, Dear Ed, fuck you. I don't know, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've, I've felt that way about every single episode we've done. <laughs> this subject, fuck you, oh, yeah, yeah. fuck off. I told Phil the story last night, and I and I ended with that. And uh, for about ten minutes afterwards, every now and then, I just hear him go, "Dear Ed, fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> and that was Ed Kemper. Wow. Um, that was it. This is the last episode of Devils in the Dark of this season. Yeah, not ever. No, like, no, not no. the last one ever. We'll be back. But season one done. Tell you what, we've learned a lot in season one, A, about how to do a podcast and B, about true crime. But I'm dead looking forward to season two because we got some good shit coming. We know what we're doing. We're in the flow. We're in the groove and we're going to, it's going to be great. We're going to rock your socks off. Do you know what I think for next season? Because I do love telling you the story, honestly. I think it'd be quite nice if you tell me some stories. I think it's time. We'll mix things up. Like, baby, you ain't know what's coming next. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming along on this uh, dark and crazy journey into true crime with us. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you very soon. Thank you, everybody. I'll miss you until next time. Until next time. So subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios, uh, especially for your patience. Alex, thank you for everything that you've done so far for us um, and for phonetically writing out everything that I can't pronounce. Bye!